That's easy for you to say because you speak the language. People kept saying, where are you? I'm in Ithra because I learned Ithra and Tanween. That's all I would say. People were like, well, what? Well, what is that? And I said, well, it's this building that looks like rocks coming out of the ground. It's pretty spectacular. But they're just, where are you going? I go, Ithra. And so yeah. it's very, my knowledge base is very limited. So I was in Demon? Demon. 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 Uh, actually, it's like the, the, the eastern region in Saudi, it's like three different cities, mm-hmm. but they're really small. So it's like you're driving and 10 minutes you're in Bahrain, which is a different city. Right. And I always mix them up. I don't know which city I'm in. The, the biggest city is Demam yes. of, of all three, but I think Ithra is technically in a place called Tehran. Okay. Which that's where Aramco is and uh, their main where they building. Got, where they got their start. Because as soon yeah. as I found out about this opportunity to go, I was like, I'm going to learn everything I could. And I realized I, I don't know a lot about it. It's, it's even hard to even find out about it. It's, so that was an interesting starting point was as an American just to try to learn about the culture, where the locations are, where, where everything is. It's, it's, completely foreign and it, and when you step out of the airport it's even more so yeah it is it is is totally different and you were doing a talk there in the Tanween event i was doing like some comedy sketches and we're sitting in rehearsals and on stage and i'm sitting at the first then the front row and doing some work up until my my turn is up and then zach comes sits next to me and and my desktop i have a picture of jim henson with uh Kermit the Frog in his hand. It's like an aspiring picture for right. me. It's like, this is where I want to be. And I had that for like the past, I don't know, like seven years. And he's like, oh, I met Jim Henson. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and you told me the story like when we were Yeah. Young. So, in fact, I got to spend time with him just before he passed away because my dad, Gary, who's with me, uh, they were doing a show together. And it was like some bring your kid to work day. And you're like, come on, let's. Go to go to work, and so I'm sitting around a uh, you know boardroom, and everyone's talking about uh, a show they were working on, and some maybe a ride concept, and I think it was the studios at the time. And right, it was a show. Yeah, it was, it was a, a show, a studio, and there was also a ride coming out. These were talking about it. so, and the thing I was I was telling you about was that I was so impressed with was that they were going around giving feedback about the ideas, and of course I'm just sitting there quietly. I'm just I'm just the kid that's there. I mean, I must have been. I don't even know how old I was, maybe 13 or 14. I was, I was Probably. Young. Then he stopped what he was doing. He looked at me and said, my name, remember my name? He said, Zach, what do you think about this? It was such an interesting moment that he wanted to know what the kid in the room thought. Because for his perspective, that's who, that's who he was playing to. Like that he was, yeah, the other adults were interesting, but he wanted to know what the kid's perspective was on that. And so in the work that I've done, Working with, with kids at all different types of risk or, you know, special needs is that I, I always remember that particular moment of how he interacted. And it was, it was such a powerful moment in mind because I remember I was at home and I got a call and somebody from Henson Group was, was calling and I, I, and I got you on the phone, dad, and I said that, you know, Jim was sick and, and it was, he passed away. Almost immediately. Only, when, when, almost immediately yeah. after. I think, you know, I think the last project he was working on, the last thing he did. I was working with Jim on a project, and um, we had been in California, and we had dinner uh, like two nights before at a little restaurant. He liked Tulip, was the name of it, or Tulip. And um, we met back in New York City, and we were recording voiceovers for the show we were working on, and Jim wasn't there in the afternoon because um, he just couldn't make it. I I don't know whether he said he wasn't feeling well or not, 
but I dropped by the changes in the script to the Sherry Netherlands where he was staying at the time down at the desk and uh, went to the airport and flew back to Orlando. And when I flew back to Orlando, my secretary met me and she said, Jim Henson had just died. And um, it was that flu or whatever that hit, you know, it, it actually killed people in a matter of hours. I don't know what the virus was, but he died and uh, it was just with him. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. It, it was devastating. Um, he had um, pneumonia. And I, unfortunately, was off on another project in California or someplace, and I did not go to the service. And a lot of people from Disney did. And uh, they said it was magnificent because all of the puppeteers, all of the people with Henson did wonderful things in the church butterflies and all kinds of stuff so it was very whimsical and and very beautiful it was i yeah. saw a video of it and he asked specifically asked that it would be a celebration it wouldn't Completely. be like he didn't want sad faces he wanted people mm -hmm. to celebrate his life celebrate his legacy have fun with it he wanted them to sing he wanted them to have a marching band or something from new orleans like doing some music It was really fascinating in a celebration. And he, I think he also, because I read his book about his, his life and um, saw a lot of documentaries of people who worked with him, like Frank Oz and, and, and everybody. And he never used to take any sick days off. He's always working. And at one point he had an operation and he's like, he went, did the operation, left the hospital and went to the office. So it was, everybody knew there was something off when he took some days off and I think because he was just putting off being sick and didn't go to the hospital and then the doctor said like if he was if he came to the hospital like a few hours earlier hmm. we, we like the antibiotics would have kicked in and we would have saved him but he was like he went there he was like at, at, like at the end of his rope and like they gave him he, they pumped him for medicine but it didn't have time to right. really work and organs just started failing and he was unfortunate but it, He he really changed a, a lot, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the world and just made the world better with whatever he did. And I always aspire just to be even maybe half of that for, for myself is just if I can just make the world a better place, I feel like I did something. Well, I know that everybody that worked with him loved him and um, he was in the short amount of time I spent with him, which was like a dot, dot, dot. I, I found him to be very kind and uh, very protective of his Muppets, that they would be doing the right things. And um, I was sitting in the recording studio, and I think Ray Goss was recording something for Piggy or whatever, and they were doing some takes, and Jim was on the couch with me because we were talking about something we were going to do that was coming up, and... Uh, He started singing, Why Are There So Many Songs About Rainbows? And he was sitting right next to me. This was like two days before he died. And uh, I will never, ever forget it. Because as a little kid, and when I say I'm a little kid, I'm probably in my 20s watching the Muppets. I put it, you feel like a little kid. Uh, they influenced not only my life, but many, 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 many lives. 
And uh, we have a good friend who's a writer, director, producer, Bill, who used to watch The Muppets all the time. And I think uh, it, it changed the whole footprint or the whole shape of how younger kids thought. Mm -hmm. And as they went into adulthood, they continued that. And unfortunately, there aren't a lot of things like that on TV anymore. Exactly. It's gone. You know, when I was a little kid, they had Howdy Doody, you know, and uh, that wasn't <laughs> anything like the Muppets. The Muppets were no, much the Muppets better. The Muppets were spectacular. And yeah. there was such a, a sense of humor that he would believe the kids would be in on it. They would pick up the culture of the stuff, like the whole rock star thing, which I always, I always thought was one of the, the funniest things, like this chef that... Uh, all the, the, the Swedish chef, the, the, all the, just the way everything, the beaker, the, it was like mm. person after person, the way they interacted, like the kids were in on the joke. So there's a lot of the shows now that's gone and Pixar will have, I mean, Toy Story is wonderful, but there is a different level that's happening. It's a deeper level for the parents to get and there's the kid level to get. And Jim Henson did it a way that both the kids and the parents were in on the joke together. Yes. And I think that is one of the, the most magical pieces. And I think that speaks to why he was in the room. Like he wanted to know what, what does the kid think? And, you know, I, I don't ever want to live. I mean, you know, growing up, you know, with, with my dad doing all sorts of events, uh, growing, I, I grew up around a lot of different famous people or saw all kinds of huge, spectacular things. And one, you know, one, the joke of my family was like, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm like, no, it's not. You've made me do that before. Like it is, you know, you would say, I just want you to put on, are there tights involved? I mean, I don't know how many shows you put me in that I was wearing tights in front of a lot of people, but. I wish he would stop that. Uh, yeah, I can tell yeah, the tights were, uh, <laughs> you, you definitely start. I, I moved from tights to a, uh, a kilt. But I think, uh, you know, thinking about the Muppets and Jim and the way he was creative, it was all unplugged yes it there was not technology with it there weren't projections there weren't special effects it was a muppet and the muppet wasn't all of those muppet designs are 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 very simplistic you know they're made out of things that we've all touched grown up with put together they weren't surreal fabrics and things that lit up yeah. and i think that was the charm of it that it, that was actually very heartfelt. Mm -hmm. it, there there is a human connection in, in it, and and that's that's what I like. And when I build my puppet and the sketches that I used to always write, I always make sure that I want the content to resonate with all ages. And when I did my videos, like back in two thousand fourteen and fifteen. I get messages from people. It's like a woman sent me a message, I think, on Facebook or something. And she's like, I really love this video that you did. And I was sitting with my daughter and my mom, and we're all watching it and laughing at the same mm -hmm. time. That's the power I want. But now with social media and a lot of the things that we watch, everything is catered to you um, as, as a viewer. So right. you would watch something that you know, that you like, and you would watch something that you like, and I would watch something, but we don't all watch the same thing. Right. right? And I wanted something that just works on so many levels, and that's what the Muppets did. Mm -hmm. they, they, the Muppet show, even Sesame Street, you see some of these sketches where right. you think somebody was like high when they wrote it, and it's like, <laughs> oh, I'm here, but I want to be there. So you take them there, it's like, well, now I'm here, but I want to be there. And they, and they teach you about here and there right. in a sketch that's just funny. Yeah. 
Very uh, universal. It's universal for exactly. all languages, all exactly. cultures. They and get it. And when I and now now working on television, working with, with movies and stuff, and I tell people like, okay, so who's the target audience? It's like everybody. everybody. It's like no, no, no. You have to decide on. You have yeah. to pick one category, and you cater to that. Well, why not cater to everybody? Right. You know, make something that you know almost everybody loves and or everybody laughs at. And right. you want to be funny, but you want to be appropriate. It's like I don't like. People making fun of other people and saying that that's comedy. Right, right. You, know, you make fun of a situation. You can right. make fun of a mentality, of a way of thinking. But you know, you don't have to make fun of somebody. Well, there was even a playful sweetness in like the old gentlemen that were watching the show on the Sesame Street. There was the two guys that were like the peanut gallery that would give the commentary. You know, you know, letting us know we know these jokes are bad. You know, when they would, when they put it out there, and they, oh yeah, and that was a great way they would play that. But there was a kindness to it, and I think that is a um, a major part of what's missing in in the world. That that's and so you can just see that. So sitting next to you and seeing that, if that's what you're going to choose, if if that's the person you're trying to emulate, and so that you know immediately began a conversation between you and I, and then and so it was Melissa Vale. Yeah, Dr. Melissa Vale is the one yeah. who got you to come and also got me to come there. So the person that got us to sit there in the situation, and she looks at me, she goes, sit next to him. That's the guy I want you to hang out with. <laughs> and it's like she's such a such a connector. She, yeah. was, like, she was so she excited is. to to put these moments together. The whole team from the Ithra group uh, really were interested in this idea of, of play, but they arranged it so all the different speakers and all the people that were, that were guests would interact with each other and to see what this idea was about and the the whole concept of this is a, a cr- what is creative interaction and seeing that is not as a form of just play in, in itself, but a necessary thing that needs to happen. Like you, you, you need play. It, it's as important as all, all the other biological needs right there with water and food and socialization and, and, and to see that in a place that's been known to be so serious, it was really remarkable. Mm-hmm. To, to just watch the entire thing. I mean, they had giant puppets. They had puppets there that were maybe 50, 60 feet tall. They were operated by uh, huge crane lifts. They brought in a football team to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, the box war guys made uh, things out of boxes that they had armor. They put on full-scale battles. Uh, There's a gentleman there who flew a rocket hand with, with, with rockets on his hands. That yeah, like fire. Iron Man. Wow. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was like thing after thing after thing, day after day, and all the different speakers that were all uh, together. A, a, a clown that went and performed in uh, war-torn areas came on right after I did, and, and she had fabulous hair. We both looked at each other like going, you, you, <laughs> like how mm-hmm. are like, how are uh, these, all these incredible people from different places all, you know, put together with this idea of hope and joy. Uh, you would have loved it, Dad. I mean, you. I that, would have. That would be a... next time. Take me. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, it'd be a pleasure. Well, that's why we came. Now I know somebody I could go visit. <laughs> yes, right. you can. Um, let's make sure that uh, we are recording. So I'm Amar Saban, Kiri Pabin, Zachary Pabin. And can you tell people about yourselves just so that they know a little bit of who you are? Well, I'm Zach's father, and I'm very proud of that and his nonprofit, More Heart Than Scars. 
and uh, proud that he's helped so many people. And uh, one of the things that probably I'm known for in show business is heart. And Zachary has a lot of heart in all the projects that he goes into. And I'm, I'm very proud of that because he spends a lot of time doing that when he could spend time maybe doing other things. My background, I was a college professor. I was a high school teacher. I worked at Disney as a writer-director. Uh, I worked at Madison Square Garden. And then I had my own company where I um, wrote shows for the Paralympics and uh, Super Bowl halftime shows and a musical in Copenhagen. Uh, but entertainment has been my life um, because I like to make people happy. I remember when I, when I was a little kid, my father said, what's the most important thing to you? And I said, uh, to be happy and make people happy. And uh, a lot of people said, well, that's not a very big goal. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, through my life, I've been able to do that, and so has Zach. And uh, I, I still think making people happy is pretty important. Yeah, when well, I was talking with Zach about this, and then he was told, telling him that, that that was my goal when I shifted from architecture to, to entertainment, is I enjoy making people happy. See? I used to always just joke around, and everybody felt like with a very uptight culture that it's uh, inappropriate. You have to be serious. Yes. And I felt like I can't, and I need to make this... Maybe I need to make this my job just so that I can have an excuse to what do it. What a great job to make And it's an happy. amazing job. And yeah. the funny thing is, as soon as I put a puppet in my hand and did the same jokes, people felt like it was appropriate. And they laughed at the jokes. The same people who used to chastise me on, you know, being inappropriate. And right. I felt like, oh, okay, so this, this, I was just doing it in a different, in the wrong place. And That's I need right. to shift to, uh, to entertainment to do it. And, Zach, tell us about... Yeah, so I'm Zachary Pabin, and my background has been working in mental health and experiential education, uh, primarily with, with young people. So that was when I started, when I graduated from college back in 1992. I've been working with kids that were on the edge. They were on the system where they were, maybe they were going to be coming out of being incarcerated or in, in danger of being incarcerated. Kids with uh, learning differences, uh, now they're calling it neurodiversity. So... Uh, and I, we didn't call it autism spectrum back then, but, they, but that's that was a piece of it, along with a lot of oppositional defiant behaviors, children that really struggle with interacting with authority in a way that was, okay, it's not just they didn't want to say no. Their, their no was a pretty solid no to everything. They would re respond uh, sometimes very violently. And over the years, we found out that was uh, very significantly from the trauma they experienced. So working with kids that have been in traumatic situations and in families that were disrupted. So uh, I've been doing that work for a long time. And then I started uh, More Heart Than Scars after the Boston bombing uh, 2013. And uh, on the, uh, it was the 15th of April is when the, the event took place. And it took me about seven or eight days afterwards, I started a Facebook page saying, calling it More Heart Than Scars, trying to reach out to people that had suffered loss or, you know, were recently amputees or recently in a trauma that they could live an adventurous life. So I continue to work with uh, students with uh, neurodiversity issues as well as running my nonprofit. For me, it was kind of eye-opening because I never thought of that, you know, just being adventurous and going on these um, like races, like yeah, Spartan, Spartan races, races right. for people with disabilities that this is something they would 
want to do or it would just make a huge difference in their lives and then when you th- when you really think about it you can see, you kind of see it right it's like that's just a challenge you're challenging yourself and once you do this challenge and once once you conquer that challenge you feel like you can conquer anything well people with disabilities or even like using that word so much anymore it's a different abilities or people with challenges uh, every day in life is an obstacle so, yeah. so for my friends just transferring from their wheelchair to their car is an absolute obstacle. It's just how they're going to break the car and break down the wheelchair to put it in the car. Uh, what are they bringing with them? What do they need with them? I mean, so if you think about it, you're a dad, I'm a dad, like you can bring so much stuff. Like you think before you're a parent, like I have free time. Well, uh, you know, <laughs> free time is over. You know, like you think about what am I going to carry? When you have kids of different ages, you've got backpacks full of stuff. Yeah. Well, an adult with disability issues the amount of things from the bathroom issues, are they warm enough? Are they hydrated enough? Did what transportational things? Was there a backup for the wheelchair? What is this plan for the, it's just thing after thing after thing after thing. And so every day for somebody that's dealing with, um, being in a wheelchair is already an obstacle course already. And so just doing an obstacle straight on is sort of like, Oh, I think they have, uh, with the Paralympics, which is similar, uh, the challenges they have, they make the impossible possible. Uh, I had a um, kid that was one of the, uh, he gave a little speech during the opening ceremony for the Winter Paralympics in Salt Lake City, and his name was Rudy. And Rudy, I think at the time of the Paralympics, was around 14. He might have been a little bit older. When he was a small child, his legs did not grow. And as a result of that, um, he had many, many, many operations so that they would extend his legs and stretch them so that he would be the right height for the individual that he was going to be growing up. And finally, everything got stretched out to the way it was, but they didn't work because they had been operated on so many times that it couldn't walk. So Rudy said to the doctor, if you cut my legs off, will I be able to walk? And the doctor said, no, Rudy you'll be able to run. And he was in every possible event for the Paralympics. And with the titanium legs and all this stuff, you know, uh, I felt that the the people in the Paralympics that I would met, whether it was in the Summer Paralympics in Australia or in, in, in Salt Lake City, um, they were much taller, much braver, and much stronger and uh, much better people than any of us could possibly be. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you can't usually if if you're not living with people who are going through stuff like that, you don't really think no. of. Yeah, you, you don't really think of that way. No. Or, you, you can't. You can't you know, really if I get a splitter, yourself. I'm gone for the day. <laughs> I don't do anything. You know, and I don't climb mountains. I stand up on the scale to weigh myself. I'm exhausted. <laughs> I don't want to be climbing, hanging off of a cliff. And a lot of those people are blind, right. you know. And, and uh, I think when uh, they lit the cauldron in Atlanta at the um, Paralympics, the Summer Paralympics, the person that did it, I can't remember the athlete's name, but he didn't have any legs, and he climbed a rope with his hands with a torch on his back to light the cauldron up Whoa. to the top. And it just seems like that's impossible, but they make the impossible possible. possible. And I think that's part of more heart than scars. Yeah. Zachary, with his shield and his sword and his kilt and uh, his beard, 
Uh, he is a superhero because he gives them that uh, knowledge and that strength and the love to go do it. And they think, oh my gosh, I can get through this. I can do it. Exactly. And and, and people usually forget that entertainment is a big is, is a big part of this. Right. It's like you, you were joking when I walked in, I have a Superman shirt on and yes. they asked me if I'm Superman. Subliminally. It was the cape. It was the cape that, <laughs> that did it, actually. The tights, too. The tights. Yeah. He's good in tights. He's so when you said your name was Clark Kent, I knew that was wrong. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's like, for me, just growing up, I never was confident. I never was confident enough to do anything because I w- I've always felt different. I always felt like I, w- I didn't belong somewhere. And I didn't have the confidence to walk up to people and talk. I didn't have the confidence to express myself because every time I did, I did something wrong or somebody told me that I was, wasn't doing it right. But through comic books and through cartoons and like watching Superman is like, you know, I wish I can be like that. I wish I can have the power to fly or to stop somebody or stop bullies or, you know. So for me, every time I wear this like logo on my chest, I feel like, you know what, I feel a little bit more confident. Mm-hmm. I feel like, you know what, I have the power. You know what, I can be that. So some a lot of times people think it's like, why am I dressing up in t-shirts and cartoon characters all the time? Well, it's because it, it, it you know, it makes me feel better. Right. It makes me feel, you know, inspired. And there's this um, uh, documentary about a kid who grew up, who, who is autistic and uh, he couldn't really express himself. And then he started watching Disney movies. And then he found a way to really express himself through those movies. And he started, you know, watching even more and more. And I think he also wrote a book about it and how Disney movies changed his life. Mm-hmm. And like you worked with Disney and, and again, people think of it like entertainment, but they don't see the, the whole aspect of what these pieces of art can mean to other people and how they can change their lives and really inspire them where they see themselves, you know, in these situations. And it's not just entertainment. It's not just, you know, wasting time if you're watching it or working on it. it it's something that really changes lives. And uh, Well, it's beauty. Doing something that's beautiful on purpose uh, elevates your spirit. So whatever is beauty, what, beautiful, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, you know, focus and meditate on, on those things. It, it begins on a, on, on a profound level to lift you up. So when I was younger and I thought I had to do all this really deep stuff, like I was, here's the work that I'm doing, you know, cause I, I grew up in a world that was highly imaginative. I mean, my first job, uh, was being a hovercraft pilot in one of my dad's shows in which gumdrops hit the water and they turn into dragons, which is completely logical. It was Dreamfinder flew over, dropped them. And so I was, you know, a hovercraft pilot wearing tights, purple tights with seaweed for hair and a mask on and goggles. And, and that was, you know, that was, that was my job. I mean, I rode my bike. Uh, to Disney, the backstage, I go in and then I'd go put on the tights and I'd fly it around. So trying to figure out what was real, that was a very different, you know, you talk to somebody else, what, what, what are you doing for a job? Well, I'm working at the golf course or I'm, you know, I'm picking oranges or I'm working, uh, you know, like <laughs> mechanics or delivery. Oh, I'm a hovercraft pilot. I'm a baby dragon. Um, <laughs> so try to figure out, you know, what was real and grounded. And, and what mattered. So I, I, I went after what was serious for a long time and in, through the psychology work and that, you know, my dad would put on these big shows and I would think, well, maybe that was simplistic until you were talking to me about the experience you had to have. And you went down to Brazil for when you were looking, you're going all around the world. You were doing the millennial show 
Millennium, yes. And so the Millennium show, she had to come up with something for Disney for Epcot. And at the time, Epcot wasn't doing great, actually. What what year is that? Uh, Millennium uh, was Millennium. Yeah, 2000. 2000. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. So actually, we were. I was writing the show in 1999. Didn't even know what Millennium meant. Right. You know, and then everybody thought the world was going to come to an end. You know. Oh yeah, I remember. Right. Here it's going to be 2020. And they thought none of the computers would work or right. all of these things. Y2K. Boom. Right. Well, you you went on a, a journey, or basically everywhere you could, to try to figure. out. So now I'm finding out that you are my age now, almost. I think you were you were you were yeah you were. I well I I was your age when I lived in New York. Right. So when you went down to you went to Brazil and you went to a, a festival where you it was a, a parade thing. What? No, I went to no 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 that was I went to Trinidad. Trinidad. Okay. Um, there was a, a gentleman. His name is Peter Mitchell. Peter designed the Olympics in Barcelona. Uh, it was big water people that were water and big puppets, and it was very well done. Uh, that was in '92, I think. Yes. Okay. So went with Cheryl and I went to Barcelona for that, and then Peter designed the Olympics in Atlanta. '96. Uh, yes. Okay. And Peter then uh, I I liked his work so much. He started the work on uh, the show that I was doing for Disney, and uh, Peter lived in Trinidad, and um, in Carnival in, in, in Trinidad, uh, a lot of people come together in bands. They're called bands. There could be a thousand people in a band, and each band would have music for Carnival, and all of these bands would unite like a day or two days before Carnival, and they'd They'd have fets, parties, big parties where they'd dance all night. Well, one of the things they do is juve. And Peter said, uh, Peter was very soft-spoken, a genius, really. And he said, Gary, what you need to do is get up at 2 o'clock in the morning and wear something old, and we will pick you up to take you down to the band and you will proceed to the savannah. And the savannah was this big stage that you walked across at sunrise. Well, I got in the street, started walking and the music was playing, but I noticed in front of like every 200 people, there were big trucks. And in the big trucks, they had people with like slingshots and they were firing paint at you. So as we proceeded for many blocks, we were then all covered in paint. Everybody looked the same. We were all covered in paint like mud. So that when we went across the savannah with thousands of people watching us, we were all the same. Wow. You couldn't tell if we were... We could tell if we were short or tall because we were covered in mud. And uh, it was a very interesting feeling. It was... a. Uh, it was very inspiring, and the day proceeded because uh, it stayed inspiring almost all night long because when we got to back, Taz, my friend, who was a producer for the show that I did at Disney, he was with me, and uh, when we got back to our room where we were staying, there was no water. <laughs> so we stayed painted till about 9 o'clock at night. <laughs> and uh, anyway... Uh, that inspired me to about color 
and shape and form and music, how it ties us all together. And when I did the Tapestry of Nations show, Gavin Greenaway was my composer. He was working with Hans Zimmer, who okay. has done a lot of movies. In fact, Gavin conducts his music now. He's doing a tour in London. Gavin's father wrote the song, I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing in Perfect Harmony, the Coca-Cola song. Mm -hmm. And Gavin wrote a song and the music, when I worked with Gavin, which tied all cultures together, had lyrics that didn't make any sense, but it had a sound and a rhythm and a movement. So having gone to Juve, having experienced that, um, made it possible for me to do that show, which really the goal of it was to tie people together. It didn't have any Disney characters in it. Uh, it had sages of time that talked about time and and uh, being part of something bigger uh, than all of us, something big in the world. There were little specks. Well, you you show me a picture of yourself, and like you just sort of disappeared, and then you said there was no color, there was no sexuality, yeah. there was yeah. no male, female. Yeah, everybody was sort of the same. And I, I was watching that. I was watching this evolution that you were going through, that you were doing all these big shows, and so. You know, you, I think it was one time you were directing some show and there was, uh, oh, who used to, who played God? Who played, uh, in, in, oh, God. What was his name? The, uh, the older actor? He's oh, uh, uh, George Burns. George Burns, right. So there was a TV, there was a movie out that played God, you know, the, the old guy that played God. So I remember watching my dad, you were up by the, uh, the Hollywood, uh, letters and there was an opening shot for one of those Super Bowls we did. And so George Burns, you were Super directing Bowl him. Super Bowl 21 with yeah, George Burns. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sitting there as a kid watching my dad telling basically, you know, George Burns, who played God, you know, what to do. And I, and I watched that. And I've watched you tell presidents where to stand and what to do. And I've, so I've seen him do these big things. And so it was, uh, uh, hard to kind of find your place in the world. Like, well, what does your dad do? And he's like, well, he does big shows. Well, do I know the shows? Well, more people have seen his shows than anything else, but they don't, they don't know him particularly. He did this Super Bowl halftime show or that Super Bowl or he opened Epcot or he opened MGM Studios, like these big spectacular events. And so when you live on this, like our whole life schedule was you would go away. You, 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 well, first of all, you'd come up with an idea, you'd sketch it, got on the porch. Yeah, brainstorm ideas. Smoked a lot of cigarettes. He used to smoke a <laughs> lot. lot of tobacco. <laughs> it would just, oh, I made a lot of tobacco companies. Rich. A lot of yellow legal pads. <laughs> I was coming ideas and singing ideas and songs, and you know, I'd go back and forth and pitch ideas and say different things, and then he would go and present this idea, and the, that's what he was most famous for: was selling any idea. Just I coming sell with, a show. So he'd sell the show. He'd get up on the table and dance and sing and say, and then there's gonna be more showgirls. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and so, like living this lifestyle thing, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I was on this journey of trying to figure out, well, who am I in this? You know, because I, I like to uh, tell stories. I enjoyed being on the stage and I did that to a certain extent, but I had to figure out what, you know, what was my deeper path. And so my mother's background was well, she was very much involved in the Episcopal Church. She was an altar guild. She was uh, very much in interested in the, in the she's spiritual. She's an artist. Path. And she's an artist. So I have these. These, and these she puts two. up with us. Yes, yeah, she does. So I have these very, uh, she's making food in the other room for us right now, which is, which is wonderful. So I had these concepts of putting on the show. So I remember. But what you did, Zachary, yeah. is, well, I did big shows. Like one year I got an award for doing the largest show in the world because I had over 20,000 people just in the card section. But, um, we beat the Pope's tour. 
Um, so the first time the Pope came to the United States, there was there was like a thing. What was the most spectacular thing that happened? And they're like, yeah, that's cool. But you know, I was like, Dad, I don't know if that's Pan American game. I don't know that's good karma or not to be <laughs> that's the Pope. A good is thing that, to is be that a good Pope. thing to do? But yeah, you <laughs> but I was directing people and I was doing the show, and Zachary took it a step farther. He became the superhero. He became this person, and with his wife Wendy, who they worked and co-founded so War Hearts and Scars together, became a hero and gathered all these people and have all these hits on the internet, which I know nothing about. You know, I, I don't under really understand because I'm 77 years old. I'm not 50 years old like my young son. Very young. So he took it a step farther. And well, not only take it a step farther, it, it was very unique. Nobody else was doing it. Nobody else was even thinking about it. So uh, well, I while think there were dancers right. and stuff and I just yeah. made a big show, Zachary came up with something that was totally original. But I came from that idea that I watched you in your your you were developing it and seeing the shows. You'd have to you'd have to do a Disney thing after a Disney thing. So you would start off parades, and they would and then there would be a new show or a new movie that came out, or you had to do a new festival. Everything was very much on a do the big performance and and make it targeted to the marketing concept. I mean, your your, your nemesis of your life was the marketing team. Like, are we going to get all the different characters? <laughs> well, in there? it used to be, and you probably know this from doing Sesame Street. Uh, there's a word called show business. There's no business yeah. like show business. Mm -hmm. And a long time ago, show business, if you're reading it, there's an S and a B. The S and the B were the same height. The S was this big and the B was this big. Well, what happened was the S got very small and the B got very big. Uh -huh. It became a business. Right. And the show went away. So a long time ago with Busby Berkeley and all the movies in the 40s and all of the big spectacles in Las Vegas and stuff with hundreds of showgirls and, you know, all of that stuff. Don't have it anymore because it's a business. Can't afford to have all those dancers or all those set changes. So it's changed. And But there are many businesses now with the Internet and YouTubes and different ways to see things. And it's it's a whole different world. Exactly. And, and, and I think that's why we don't have like spectaculars like we used to have when we were younger. I mean, now they can do it with technology, um, yeah. but it's not the same. It's not the same as having impact. the real people there. Exactly. Well, I think that when I, mean, I watched you to put this together, these ideas that I've been thinking about is as you and I are now getting older and, and how do our, our lives go? And I went on this very different path because when I graduated, he said, okay, now there's some producers and some different people you could work with. Here are some job possibilities, and these are incredible opportunities. And if I'd wanted to go into theater or into show business, I, I certainly had some introductions. I mean, I, I think I was a decent enough storyteller and creative enough, but there was the in. And I went as far away from that as possible. You know, I talked to you about that you know, when I had my accident when I was 10, that the trauma of losing my fingertips and then the every couple of years having to get my hands operated on again put me in a position where I struggled a great deal. And the amount of escape and the amount of, of things available to you, if you're, I, you know, I've, I've, I think I don't know if I told you this, Dad, but one time I was really hungover uh, going to work. I can tell you now, I was really hungover and I was going to, to work and I was driving one of the, the hovercrafts around and I, I ended up uh, slamming into one of the firewood bars and I knocked the front of the hovercraft off 
Right. I smashed the front of the firework. Bar- those barges are worth a fortune. And the show director, where the guy showrunner, screaming, losing his mind <coughs> that I slammed into the thing, which was appropriate. And I and I and I, I turned off and powered it down. And I took off my 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 uh, lizard mask and I said, "I'm so sorry." And then he saw who he was. He goes, Zach, it's all right. No problem. Sorry about that. We got another hovercraft. Yeah, get I, into. I don't believe that. That's unbelievable. That, and that's, <laughs> that's how that went. And so, you know, your dad's the show director, the creator thing. You get treated a little differently. And so I had to figure out who I was in this. And so I watched you, you know, direct, you know, George Burns, Where to Go and different things like that. But we were at a church retreat thing at a, at a sheriff's boys ranch. And you were a part of the crew that was handing out mac- macaroni to the kids. <laughs> who um, struggled greatly. They were they were disrupted from their families, and so our group was there. And so Dad was out there and serving out the macaroni to the kids. And I watched your interactions and how you interacted with those kids, and you treated them in the same way. And Disney did a neat thing where they would make you, if you were an executive, go and work in the fast food part or do whatever. No matter who you were, for a period of time at Disney, you had to step and go on, you know, and work in the in the kingdom right. as a regular employee. Right. But that was, that was one of the things I noticed with my dad, if he was either interacting with kings or with presidents or with, uh, the, the kid in the card section was a volunteer, so he would treat them the my same. My father said, treat everybody the same. And that's everybody the same. Uh, that I saw. And there happening. isn't a day that goes by that if I see somebody that's begging on the street, you know, I, I, I wish them the best or do a prayer for them to be okay, you know, because we could all be there. Yeah. We're all the same. We're not, we're not that special. <laughs> well, that you particular know? boys' ranch, I ended up uh, back by there as as an adult. That's I ended up working with those 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 same kids. So I I was impressed by that. But as I watched your shows go on, Dad, and seeing how you would make things bigger and bigger, you you that idea of being in the mud of everybody being the same is really what what comes out of these mud races. Like as everyone starts out, they're all hyped up and they're jumping up and down. They're getting ready to go to race. But as it goes on, they begin to take care of each other. And there's a few of the elite athletes, and they're great folks. There's a small group that go out to the front. But the rest of us just don't have this communal experience, and there's, the, there's a tribal feel to it. There's this whole sense of going through this journey together, and that you end up so covered up, you can't tell the difference between who's able-bodied and not able-bodied, uh, what, what color you are, what religion you are. And the only thing you can tell is maybe heights, and you all get you know, mushed up in the mud together. And so I think that that hearing that I started making these connections going like maybe the big show is as important as the individual connections. And so we're looking at one of those videos together and I said, well, I learned, but with that one video they did that ended up in the movie, The Rise of Sufferfest, I, yeah. I was coming with Michael and I mean, we knew I was going to jump over the fire and I, I talked to the guy, if we hurry up, the young producer guy there, if we hurry up, we can get magic hour and we can get the sun Coming over the fire through the smoke, through my hair, yeah. holding on to the guy, and you can zoom in, and it's going to be a beautiful shot. And I realized I learned that from you. I, all those, you know, all those rehearsals that I was, you know, like dragged to when you were a college professor. I was in, you know, mom would make a little tent for me to stay out there to watch the shows, and you put me toodles and right, I was, right, right, was Peter Pan. I mean, so I grew up with the stage stuff. So it seems that part of my world is coming together. But the neat thing that happened is. As my journey came along in that way, I think you became more spiritual in your journey. I think the beauty that you put into it raised to a higher level. I think one that shows that I'm most proud that you did was for, uh, was for AIDS. And so he's most known for starting out small and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So you'd start off with like, there's one grand piano out there and one guy's playing. And then the next thing you know, 
from the wings in come more pianos and more <laughs> top hats and more dancers. And there's so many dancers on the stage. I think they couldn't possibly be and now another dancer. I say dancer. less is more, more or less. <laughs> yes. Well, I have a book down there that says more is more. <laughs> just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And there, there would be balloons and there would be bird releases and fireworks. And just you would think the climax of the show had happened and there was... Nope, one more and one more, and that will fly people over. We'll do this and this and this, and get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, when you put on, it was in there's the Bob Carr Auditorium. I didn't even get to go to this one. This one I had to hear about. But I, and when I talked about shows that you've done, and I think about the meaning of them. So you did one for AIDS in which it start. You started off with a, a the, the number was big. Everyone was out on stage. It was just, it was the finale at the start, and then you stopped, and an announcer came and said. Every year, this many costumer designers have died of AIDS. And they went out and they undressed everyone down to just the, the basic outfit. They took the costumes off. And this year, this many musicians died and the music stopped. And this many choreographers died and this many dancers. And just went all the way through until there was nothing left but this many lighting designers died. And then the lights went out and the show was over. So we've had some ex- adventures <laughs> And we probably have talked too long. <laughs> no, no, we were we we're really good on time. But how? What's the process that you write, and how can how how can you get this creative when it shows? Especially when you do a show and you feel like, oh, that show was amazing. How can you top that the next time? Because they're all different. They're all different. Different times in my life. Different adventures. Uh, if I had to make a sandwich the same way every day. You know, an assembly line. I couldn't do it. Uh, one of the things you do at Disney is you cross you. And when you cross you, it's like at Christmas time or Easter time or spring break when everybody's that hourly employees are gone with their families. So people that are vice presidents, directors, or whatever levels would come and they would cook hamburgers or they would pop popcorn. And I was t- doing hamburgers for like two hours to fill in for somebody. And I made like, I don't know how many hamburgers. And I said to the guy next to me, how long have you been working here? And he said, 20 years. And I, I thought, 20 years making hamburgers? I would die the first day. <laughs> and uh, my life and my shows were all different. You know, it might be a Super Bowl halftime show. It might be the opening of the Pan American Games. It might be a big Christmas show at the castle or a New Year's Eve show or a new parade or uh, the lighting of the Christmas tree in New York City, or the opening of the Macy Parade in New York. They were so different that uh, I was able to grab onto it. Very few times in my entire life did I not come up with an idea for something. You can come up with a lot of ideas when there's a lot of money to make it happen. <laughs> Makes a difference, you oh, know. Yeah. You could say, I'm going to go to the moon. And then if you don't have enough money to build a spaceship, that's not good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so you know that in show business. So working with Disney or Madison Square Garden or with the Paralympics or where there's funding and uh, people, volunteers, you know, it takes a lot of volunteers. I, I can't do a show by myself. Zachary can't do an event by himself. It takes people. And uh, you just have to inspire the people to make it happen. And if you don't have the people, it doesn't happen. And you need the people to watch it, too. You can create wonderful things, but if nobody comes, you know, my wife paints. If nobody comes to see her painting, that's not so good. Uh, I was just reading about a guy that I talked to when Zach was on his trip, and he wrote in his little manual, 
art doesn't become art until somebody owns it or somebody has it, mm-hmm. you know? So you can create all these things. That's one thing I like about music. It takes you someplace right away. It's like smelling your mother's food, something you love to eat. It takes you to that time, that bonding. And uh, you need all those senses to make it all work. And um, lucky, I'm, I'm a creative person, but everybody's creative. Whether you're an accountant or an archeologist or whatever, you have to be creative on how you put all those things together. You know, uh, women are so creative. We wouldn't be here if there weren't women. You got to have mothers, of course. <laughs> you know, you just can't be around. So. Yeah, but th- this, this was the main thing that got me out of my day job was I wanted something different. I like to work on different things every day. And then when you get to work on show business, if you're writing, I love writing, uh, you know, content. I love writing sketches. Each one is, is different in, yeah, a, in right. a different way. You tr- and, and when you write in comedy specifically, the joke, the funnier the joke, uh, or the joke is funnier when you don't see the punchline coming. That's and right. you have to be creative on how to hide right. it and how to bring it in. And I think that's also uh, true when it comes to, you know, having grand shows. It's like you don't want people to know where you're going what's from here happen. and right. what's going to happen. And it's like the awe of, I mean, it, as simple as just like a fireworks show in Disney. Yeah. And you know, I've seen a lot of them. And you think that that's the climax. Yeah. And then, and then it, it just goes crazy yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. after that. So it's... It's fun for me, and and I feel like, and I know a lot of other people who just likes, you know the, you know the their jobs to be predictable. It's right. like you know I want to learn how to do something, and I want to just keep on right. doing it. That's fun for me. I enjoy that. But then you find that they have a different, let's say, artistic outlet somewhere else. And when I used to do architecture, I I did a lot of other you know activities like, you know, I learned how to drum, or I used to draw or do stuff. Right. And then as soon as I started doing creative work as my day job, my all the other activities became non-creative or like right, or not, right. not, not, non-artsy. Yeah. Right, say. that's artsy, fartsy. Yeah, so <laughs> I, 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 you do just like simple games or anything that's repetitive. Like I now I do podcasting, so that's that's really nice, and it changes from episode to episode, sure. from person to person. Well, you do but, them in Arabic and English too, like yeah, yeah that's got to be interesting to it switch is. it up. It is interesting, but at the same time, the editing process is just like repetitive. Mm-hmm. It's the same, and I enjoy that because I don't have to think. It's just right, like right because well, I, if you're a neurosurgeon. You don't want to be operating on somebody's brain and say, let's be creative. Let's take this guitar <laughs> over here. And look, look, his, his leg goes up when he's waving. Doesn't that look good? Or when he blinks, his tongue sticks out. Isn't that nice? So there's that discipline <laughs> in the repetitive part. Yeah. You know, we <laughs> we want people that are doing their job. Yeah. Some people have to do that. Like airline pilots, it would be nice if they would fly the plane. Right. We want it very, very repetitive. We want it mm-hmm. to be exactly the same. Yeah, it's interesting that the combination of the discipline, the creative, and the repetitive. So there's parts of what we do for our charity that is very repetitive. It's it's insane. It's the same ingredients. Okay, we're going to go through obstacles. We're going to bring a wheelchair. But now adding kids on the autism spectrum, that's added a whole new level of thought because what it used to be just as a physical element going through there, you'd have an emotional point. You know, if anyone that's in a wheelchair, if someone's helping them, you get tired, you get hot, you get cold. You're, you're, do you have enough energy to keep going? 
But then when you would add the neurodiversity of someone on the spectrum, they're experiencing that mud puddle completely different oh, yeah. than I am. I'm looking at it going like, oh my God, how many clean catheters do I have for my wheelchair athlete? And how many tiles we have where you get stuff on our eyes and, and the sun is in this location and we have four more hours to the finish line where you get hypothermia. And I'm thinking about all of that. And I have a kid just standing there who's thinking about the texture of the mud and the, and the, the, the air and on his body. And will he live through the experience? <laughs> so like, it's a, you know, he's physically able. He's completely able to get into the mud puddle and go to go underneath the deal. Mentally. Mentally, it's a different deal. Whereas my, you know, uh, our, a paraplegic athlete cannot physically put themselves under, underneath the wall, the dunk wall to submerge themselves and come oh, up yeah. the side safely and close their eyes and be in our arms. So they're having a, do I trust these people? Am I okay? Are they going to keep me safe? You know, there's just this moment where we get to the dunk wall where, you know, my, the athlete is looking at me and I'm right there with him and, you know, with so many other side holding the arms to, to lower and go under. But each person, is ex- experiencing that in a totally different way. And total different ap- obstacle, total different challenge. Yes. I'm thinking of the mechanics of it. I'm thinking of the, the safety of it. I, I'm aware of my, my, my kids on the spectrum, they're doing it. But I realize if, if I worry about them or try to talk them into it, they can never do it. So I never talk them into this. We just line up and say, I need your help. And, you know, she needs your help. The athlete needs your help. I need you on the other side. I said to a kid, I need you on the other side to help catch her. And so the kid's like, well, I want to help her. I said, well, then you need to go to the other side. And so I watched the kid just go through this whole like thing of like, ah, there's no way. That kid wouldn't want to stand in a mud puddle. But to submerge himself is like, I'll do this for the other person. Mm-hmm. So I think where the heart comes in, where it transforms and shines through is people will do these impossible, beautiful things if we're doing it for somebody else. And when I was Justin is, uh, was the first athlete that we really got moving with. And I, I call, I, we met each other at the Renaissance Festival. He was dressed as Burger King and I was in my little art night stuff. I said, we must joust. And we got each other's phone numbers. And at the time, I was supposed to have a big tough mudder race with one, uh, a guy named John Powers. And he was supposed to come and race with me. He was a new amputee and we were going to, uh, we were in a race together and he got sick again. His cancer had come back and, I had a whole team assembled to take him through and I needed an adaptive athlete and all these people were going to show up. And I, I happened just, just a fate. Like we talked about, like, you know, inshallah, it's like the, you know, God's will. Did it, did it work out magically that I would happen to be at the Renaissance Festival, you know, and, and to meet this guy who's dressed in Burger King and say to him, Hey, I need a wheelchair athlete. So I called him up and said, I need you to come race with me. He goes, why would I do that? You know, I could freeze to death. I could get too hot. I, get I, go, I know. I said, well, maybe we'll get you on Ellen. You could dance. He goes, I can't dance. Maybe we get you a girl. I'm not so good in the girlfriend department. Maybe we did. I came with all these ridiculous reasons for him to come. And he's like, no, 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 no. I said, here's the reason why. He said, somewhere out there, somebody is also in a wheelchair and they're newly, newly paralyzed and they've given up hope. And they're, they're going to Google paralyzed people or quadriplegic, just in case it's a quadriplegic. And they're going to find a story of you as a quadriplegic being the first quadriplegic to finish a tough mutter. And they're going to put that handgun down. And he said, I'll meet you tomorrow morning. We'll start practicing. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, he's gone on to be the first quadriplegic to get, uh, complete the Spartan trifecta. He went on to learn, get his pilot license to learn how to fly. He went on to actually buying his own airplane that he shares with the able flight crew. There is something in the inspiration in the show, showing that business, the work that needs to be done, showing it happen when committing to when Justin committed to go under that mud and come up their side. When, you know, Erica committed to do that with all these, Michael Mills, when all these different athletes 
have committed to put us in, put their lives in our hands and submerge and go down and come up the other side transformed where we're all the same. That seeing it, the people that see it on, on the internet, they're watching these images, the people along the side of it, everybody gets transformed by it. it, it it's, it's a, it's a spiritual right. It's a, it's an awakening. It's a universal, I'm, I'm going to go and face my death and fear. And I'm going to come out the other side different and together. So I think this showing the work, showing the consistent care and overcoming these obstacles is, is where the beauty is. And so it's so neat to sit with you, dad, and have this conversation. Here you are at the end of your career. And I'm at the point where I'm just trying to push it to the next level. And I thought we were doing different things. The same thing. Yeah. And, and you getting that guy, you basically sold him the idea. And that's what that's what you do. You sell. You sell an idea for people, and uh, they buy it, and, and they take it. Yeah. And Zach used to say to me when he was growing up, "Dad, I don't want to have long hair. I don't want a mustache, and I'm never going to have a beard." <laughs> he, <laughs> he said was, it all the time. I'm never going to have a mustache. I'm never going to have a beard. I'm never going to have long hair. I'm not going to do these things. I'm not doing it. And so the funny thing is that in, in order to do these races, <laughs> you really have to wear compression gear, which happens to be, turns out to be tights. So I'm actually putting on a show. I'm wearing, I'm still wearing a costume. You're still wearing tights. I'm still wearing tights. <laughs> and, uh, we're, we're doing some pretty big things together. So yeah. glad to have met you and to bring you in, into our, our, no, that's, that's situation. really fascinating. And as, as we grow older, we, we always find ourselves like turning into our parents. And, yeah. and doing what, what they did. It's like, and I, I, for the longest time, I wanted to do what my parents do. I mean, both my parents were college professors. They taught thousands and thousands of, of, of kids. They changed their lives to the better. And I felt like me trying just to make my boss look good in an, in an, in an architectural office, which might work for other people, didn't work for me. And I felt like I had a lot of potential and stuff that I needed to do. And I wanted to teach and I tried to get my master's and PhD and, and it didn't work. Because I didn't feel like I had, I, I was mastering like reading and researching and, and stuff like that. And I felt like I'm taking somebody else's place. I'll leave that and go back to work. But then when I found, you know, entertainment and what I learned, because I always used to watch television and my mom used to tell me, you're wasting your time. This is not going to benefit you at any point in your life. Stop wasting your time. Go, you know, study. And now all that entertainment that I used to watch, you know, came just full circle, and that's what I'm, right. what I'm, what I'm doing, and I'm doing that entertainment. But long story short, what I am doing right now is I am teaching other people, I am inspiring other people, and this is what I wanted to do. And I aspired to change thousands of lives, like my parents did, and in just the last like six years of my life, I affected millions of lives through Iftah Simpson, which is Sesame Street, and through you know the stuff I do, and all these kids learning about letters and numbers and, um, you know, just how to be a good person and how to, you know, in, in inspire other people. It, it just makes a difference. And you make it makes your life a whole lot better when you know that you, you know, you're doing it for somebody else. And as you said, me being under a table with my puppet hand up in, you know, in the air for like eight hours a day, when you think about the other people and, and the kids and how will they get inspired like I was inspired by right. Jim Henson and what he did. It just makes it all worth it. And it's like, you know, I can't believe people are paying, You're me, paying me money. You're a kind person. You're extremely kind. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you are. You're very likable. You I are. Be. Zach said you would be. And I said, 
Ah, oh, he's not going to be that likable. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks I'll, for talking to I'll us. We'll just end it on that. Like yeah. a compliment for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, just final, final thought. Um, what advice would you give people if they want to like sell their projects or their ideas to people? What's the one thing that you feel like is really important for you to sell something? You have to believe in it. And you have to know you know more about it than anybody else does. That's, That's true. Believe. And Zach, what do you feel like the biggest advice you can give to, to somebody for them to be able to have the heart to do something? You, you need to find uh, other examples of people that have done similar things to know that it's possible. And then you have to come apart and you have to kind of grow to the point where you recognize that I'm no better or no worse than anyone else. That if another person can do it, then we have the same access to the same gifts. And if I may not be as good at it, I could work towards that. And that if I'm going, that whatever it may be, I'm going to realize I can do that too. And so that's where seeing another athlete, seeing a blind person completing a race, seeing, a, 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 you know, somebody that, you know, I was so inspired by seeing a guy who was climbing with no legs and somebody who might be really inspired with me climbing without my fingertips. Whatever, you, you can see what's possible that others do. But that's where you have to show up. So that's where yeah. it kind of ties us all together is that people who show up and perform and do the thing that they're set up to do, that's such a ripple effect. And that's just good news shared. And then the more people see it, They believe they can do that too, and then they can join in that. Then how how can people find you if you want to plug in? Uh, oh yeah, the more heart than accounts. scars. So it's uh, moreheartthanscars.org. Uh, we're on more heart than scars uh, for Facebook. On Instagram, we're more heart than scars official. I would love for people to follow because when you're following it and you share the images, I got started by seeing a picture of uh, a guy who's now my friend named Stephen Reed and Michael Mills. Stephen Reed was pulling a wheelchair. He had a big beard, long hair. And he was at a, a death race at Spartan races. Uh, he was pulling Michael Mills with just basically paracord tied around his waist to the wheelchair. And I looked at it, I go, you know, from my background from Outward Bound and wilderness stuff and all the things I've done, I think I can maybe do that a little better. So I saw one picture and said, I want to meet those guys. And those guys are brothers to me now. Yeah. You can, you can see an image on Instagram or in Facebook that can inspire you to take action and to connect with people in real life. Don't be, don't just be a voyeur. You know, don't be a victim. You live, you want to live in victory, share the good news, share the positive images, and then go meet those people and go live that adventure. If they can do it, you can do it. So please follow us. But more than that, go follow the actions we're doing. Whatever obstacle you have in your life, whatever you're afraid of doing, face it. Amazing. You guys just made my job a lot easier today. I didn't have to talk as much. So <laughs> you just kept the conversation going. So this was our episode. I hope you guys like it. Um, you can find me at Saban31, S-A-B-B-A-N-3-1. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't assume that that is your on social Facebook, media. Facebook, Gary. Or... No, 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 no. You, if you, if you Gary... I'm in the yellow page. <laughs> <laughs> so just get a phone book. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting now that both of our names come up. If you put under Pabin, you'll see different shows that he's done. And, you know, for, for Gary Pabin, up, up will come his stuff. And, and for Zachary Pabin, up will come mine. And well, so it's... We're, we're going to work, you and me, we're going to work on shows. I Gary, think that you, would I'm, be I'm, fabulous. Yeah, I'm getting him into show business, so and don't worry I'll, about it. And then I'll come see the show. <laughs> Keep him under the table, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thank Thanks. you. That's a wrap.